Amen. I want to reemphasize what Will already said, uh, that next week is our um, annual cantata in both services, and it is uh, by far one of my favorite Sundays of the year. I encourage everyone, um, obviously, to be here, invite neighbors. Um, it, is, it is the perfect Sunday to introduce them to, um, to TCPC and our choir and Chelsea and Deb and everybody involved has been working so um, hard on, on, uh, on this, and it's going to be fantastic, so... Make sure you're there. Um, it's, I, this is my mistake. I, su- I submitted the, uh, to Ruth the wrong passage for the scripture reading. Um, that's last week's uh, sermon. This, is, this week is Matthew 1. So we're not in Luke 2. We're in Matthew 1, uh, verses 18 through 21. While you're turning there, I wanted to uh, inform uh, the congregation on, on something that I wish didn't have to inform you on. But um, many of you... Uh, have come to our church since uh, John Sartell uh, was the senior pastor. Uh, who, he, he served in this role before me. But a lot of you were around during that um, and, and know and love the Sartells. Janet, his wife, Janet Sartell, who uh, is just so beloved by our congregation, still is. Uh, she, a couple of years ago, was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And many of you know that that is, um, you, you, that's, that's, that's one um, it's really, really tough to beat. And uh, they, did a, uh, they did a procedure that was successful two years ago and gave her two years of really, really good life that they praise the Lord for. But um, her cancer has returned, um, and, it's, and it's pretty bad uh, diagnosis. And so she is nearing the end. Um, we're looking at months at the most. Uh, Mark and I made a quick trip down to Memphis uh, this past week to spend time with them. And uh, they're in good spirits. Janet, in particular, is in really good spirits. Uh, she is a dear, dear saint of the Lord and uh, is, is ready to die in the Lord. Uh, you could pray for John, though. Uh, John, you know, if, if you're around, know John. He, 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 uh, he is a strong man if there ever was one. But um, he loves his wife more than his strength, and you can tell. And... He is, uh, he's struggling with it, but also, um, also very much holding on to the promises of God. So just, just pray for the Sartells and uh, don't overwhelm them. If you're close to them or you're around during that time, don't overwhelm them with uh, phone calls or anything like that. You're welcome to send a note, uh, but uh, they, uh, they are going to try to make one visit to, she, uh, he asked her, what are some things you want to do um, in the next couple months? And one of them, she wanted to come back to Lexington. She hasn't been back to Lexington, so... Uh, we're going to get them back for a Sunday and uh, let, let her see everybody say um, hi to many of you who don't know them, introduce them to you, and bye to many of you. And um, sad stuff, but um, also uh, precious in the sight of the Lord of the death of his saints. Uh, we, we do believe in the promises of God. She believes in the promises of God. John believes in the promises of God. So let's just be praying that they would, they would hold to those promises that we know are true. And, um, and what a fitting thing to do, to now turn to his word, which is right, sure, and true, the good news of Christ's birth. Matthew 1, uh, verses 18 through 21. Now the birth of Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. 
But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The word of the Lord. Lord, it is with heavy hearts that we come to you now. Um, there's the tension of, of the Christmas that we want it to be and the Christmas that it always is, which is um, not, a, not a reprieve from the fallen world. And uh, things like cancer don't just go away uh, during the Christmas season. And, uh, and so we pray for those who are... Um, who we love, our friends, families, uh, members of this church that we love that are suffering in particular uh, during this Christmas season. Uh, I do pray for Mark Roble and his continual um, battle with ALS. We pray uh, for Jim Burkhart and uh, his cancer. And yes, we do pray for the Sartells and, and Janet um, as it looks like you are um, preparing her now, Lord, to bring her home to glory. We pray that you would strengthen that family. We pray that uh, you would strengthen John. Uh, that the promises that he has proclaimed from pulpits for 40 years uh, would be personal now to him and to Janet. That the things that they have believed for so long and have told so many others that they would now personalize and internalize. But I pray for uh, the struggling among us here. It's not just, it's not just this awful um, thing we call cancer, but just, uh, Lord, singleness that's hurting, uh, marriages that are hurting, wayward children. Lord, it goes on and on. Again, Christmas season um, is fun and enjoyable, but it, it certainly doesn't make these things magically disappear. And so we come into this season of Advent, Lord, heavy-hearted, but not without hope. And I pray that the hope of Advent would be very real to every single person in this room and every person listening online. May promises be truer than circumstances, O oh God. It is right and fitting now to turn to your word, our only hope, a rock that we can stand on in troubled times that will never let us down, will never fade. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And so I pray that the sure and true, infallible, perfect words of our God would meet us where we are this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We are in the midst of an Advent series that we began last week that looks at that wonderful verse that says, All of God's promises find their yes in Jesus. Now, God promises a lot, and indeed, every single thing that he ever promises finds its wholeness, its completion, its fulfillment in the coming of Christ. But what we did is we uh, decided to take the three probably most significant promises of the Old Testament, um, the covenants, and look at each one of them and see how Jesus is the yes to that. So there are three major covenants in the Old Testament. Um, covenant made with Abraham... Moses and David. And uh, that's where we're going this Advent season. Last week we looked at Abraham 
And this week we look at Moses, God's promise to Moses, God's covenant with Moses, and how Jesus is the yes to Moses. Uh, several weeks ago, one of my sons was working on his memory verse work. One of the things that our, our, our kids go to Trinity, one of the things I love about education at Trinity, uh, among many things, is uh, that, that scripture memory is weaved within the curriculum. And, and one of those times, I can't remember the verse we were working on memorization, but it, 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 for whatever reason, brought up, it had to do with the condition of man, the, the fallen nature of man, sinfulness of man, these things. And it brought up a good discussion about that um, at our house. And, um, and one of the things we did is, is I, I kind of asked the boys, do you really think, you know, we, you hear the sin talk all the time from my preaching and in Sunday school and our discipleship at home. You hear that word a lot. We hear about us being sinners and stuff, but is it really that bad? Like, is this verse that you're memorizing, is it really that bad? Are we really that bad? And um, there was some hesitation in, in, in their understanding of sinfulness. And so I said, to make a point, I said, I got a challenge for our whole family. This is post-dinner. So we got dinner, and then we're working on some homework in about an hour until bedtime. Post-dinner, I said, all right, here's, here is our, um, here's what we're going to do. Let's try between now and bedtime not to sin. Let's give this a try. Think we can pull it off. And my boy's like, yeah, we can do this. We can do this. No sinning, no sinning. And um, I had uh, what one, of, one who is particularly determined said, I'm going to do this, Daddy. I'm not sinning for the next hour. And uh, I kid you not, five minutes later, he punched his brother. <laughs> I had one son whose mind is, uh, he's, he's a brilliant, brilliant mind, and, um, and, and kind of cursed with an introspective beyond his years, so to speak. And, and at one point he said, you know, Daddy, I'm, I'm trying to obey everything, but only, I think, to prove you wrong, which makes that a sin. So the more honest thing would be to just sin, but that's a sin, so I guess I just give up. <laughs> so anyway, we, we did this competition in the house. It was like we all gave ourselves like, we're like a household of Holy Spirits for an hour, just like pointing each other's sins out. And it's your sin, your sin. Me and Abby are guilty as everybody and all that stuff. And, and what happened is in just one hour, um, it it became pretty obvious that this, this ain't pretty. And um, we were overwhelmed by the time we got to bedtime. We were overwhelmed with the reality of our sin. And friends, you have that problem too. You have a big problem, okay? Um, I know you've got lots of problems. I just, mentioned, I just mentioned cancer. I mentioned some of this. I know you have a lot of problems, but with all respect, and I mean that, not to minimize anything, all problems are secondary to this problem. The good old-fashioned bad news that we are sinners problem. We have sinned. We do sin. We will sin. And that's a big problem. Not just a problem for us, which is how we typically think of it, but a problem for our God who promised Abraham last week that he was going to save the nations. 
Last week we saw God begin his plan of redemption by making a promise to Abraham that through him God would create a nation, Israel, that would eventually save all the nations of the earth. That was the original promise. That's the overarching promise of redemption. And then we saw that Jesus came as the yes to that promise. He is the son of Abraham, born, as Luke says, as good news to all people. The good news is that through Jesus, the world will be saved. But what was left unresolved last week is how this baby will save the world. Because that's a really big problem. The promise to Abraham was that God through Jesus is going to save the world. But what will Jesus do to save the world? That is... Unclear in the Abrahamic covenant. Well, let's fast forward to the Mosaic covenant, to the promise given to Moses this week. Last week in Abraham, we see that God will save the world. This week in the promise to Moses, we will see how will he do this? How will he save all of these sinners? I'm going to come at it just like I did uh, Last week, our Old Testament reading that you heard is going to be the passage for my first main point, and then um, second will be this uh, passage for Matthew 1. So we're going to look at the promise to Moses. That's our Old Testament passage. And then the yes to Moses. That's our New Testament passage. Now let me preface the first point by saying that this is going to be a little bit of teaching. Um, and a lot of the first point is, is doing some uh, talking about, lecturing a little bit about covenants and Moses and how this all fits together in the story, only to set up the second point. Uh, so, so bear with me here as I, as I do some teaching in the first point about what exactly God was promising to Moses so as to set up uh, Jesus as the glorious answer to the promise to Moses. All right, the promise to Moses. Everybody probably knows Moses, even if you're unfamiliar with the Bible. You probably know Moses as the leader of Israel's exodus out of Egypt. But what, um, it's what happens after the exodus that actually makes Moses uh, such a significant figure in Scripture. These children of Abraham from last week have indeed turned into a vast people. They're very numerous people by the time Moses comes around. But they're this kind of ragtag group of clans, not this great nation that God promised Abraham they would be. And even worse, they're enslaved to the greatest nation of the day, the Egyptians. Well, Moses comes and he delivers them out of slavery. He rescues the people of Abraham through this exodus. Um, and he leads them to the mount called Sinai. And the God of Abraham calls Moses up onto the mountain to give him his law. Now, if you read the law, which is recorded in chapters 20 through 23 of Exodus leading up to this passage, and then Leviticus really goes into the details of the law. If you read the law, it can be a bit confusing because it serves kind of a dual function. Um, the first and most important way, what, what was going on with the law, is that it is God's moral commands. His moral commands, which apply to all of humanity, are binding upon all of mankind. This is the creator, creator. These are his commands for people, all of us. And they are, of course, summed up in the famous Ten Commandments, which are the first thing you get to when you get to the law. It's kind of the preamble to everything. 
So the moral commands of God summed up in the Ten Commandments. But what it also includes are civil, basically the civil constitution of Israel. See, at this point, they weren't a state. But it's after this point that they are actually a nation unto themselves. Well, now they're a nation. They need a constitution. They need a way of governing. What's they, what are they going to do and all that stuff? That's where the ceremonial and judicial laws come into play. So the ceremonial things of, of cleanliness and um, food, dietary laws and all of that. That's the ceremonial stuff. I'm not going to get into what all that is and why it can seem so strange. And then the judicial laws of here's how you operate justly. These are all applied to the newly formed nation of Israel. Now, they are no longer binding upon God's people once the civil nation of Israel was fulfilled in Jesus and the church. Again, I'm not going to take time to get into that this morning. If you have further questions about how all that works, um, I'll point you to my lecture series on covenant theology that goes into depth. That's on, online. You can go listen to that. But for our purposes this morning, what you need to know is that Exodus 20 through 23 Moses meets with God on Mount Sinai to receive the law of the Lord. And then our passage, Exodus 24, is directly after that meeting. So, so Moses goes up on the mountain, receives the law of God. Yes, the moral law, but also the ceremonial and judicial laws. But the moral law of God, and then comes down, and then here's Exodus 24. I won't take time to read our passage again. Let me summarize what happens. Moses comes to the people of Israel and he tells them the law of the Lord that was revealed to him. And it says in verse 3 that the people responded by saying, All the words of the Lord has spoken, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. That's a pretty brash statement. Everything that God told you, we're going to do. Well, then Moses does something interesting. The next morning, he wakes up really early and he builds an altar. And um, this altar is at the foot of the mountain. And what he does is he slaughters oxen and half the blood from this sacrifice he throws on the altar. And half the blood he puts in basins. Then he gathers the people together again at the foot of the mountain. And once again, he reads the law to them. And once again, they respond the exact same way in verse 7. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. Now, in response to their pledge of fidelity to the law, we read this in verse 8, which is the key verse here. Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people. And he said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now, what is that all about? This is an ancient covenant ceremony, okay? Moses builds an altar, which represents God's side of the relationship of the covenant, and he splashes blood on it. Then the people gather, and they promise to obey God, and Moses throws blood on them. And this grotesque act, the ceremony, is the most solemn act in the ancient world. It is an official covenant agreement between God and his people, which is literally signed in blood. I mean, literally, we get that term because they actually used to literally do this. And the reason why there's blood is that this, it, the meaning of this is that this covenant arrangement is literally deadly serious. This is no just informal handshake. We cut the covenant. He did this with Abraham too, by the way. We didn't go to that passage last week. We cut a covenant. 
And blood is upon both of us. And the meaning is, if either of us fail to deliver on the promise of this covenant relationship, may our blood be shed. Or literally, may we be put to death. May death be upon us. So what is each side promising here? God is recommitting himself to the promise he gave to Abraham. I will be your God, you will be my people, I will bless you, I will love you as my own, I will defend you, I will save you, I will dwell with you. You are mine, declares the Lord. That's what he's promising. The people are promising obedience to God's law. And notice how bold, and I would even say foolhardy, is their promise. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. Every law of God we are going to obey, and then the covenant is signed in blood. So here's the Mosaic covenant, okay? Summing it up. God promises you will be my special people, and I will be with you as your God. The people promise we will perfectly obey everything that you have commanded us to do. If either of us fail, let death be upon us. Now, immediately you see the problem, right? I mean, them saying, all that you have commanded to do, we will do. We will be obedient. That sounds just like my son saying, I can do this. I will obey. Give me a break. They're not going to be able to pull this off. But here's the point. You might see the major problem in this text is the people promising that they will obey. We will obey everything you say is laughable. And they proved that shortly thereafter by building a golden calf to worship as an idol. So literally right after this, we will obey. Let's build a calf and worship it. But that's actually not the problem of the covenant here. The problem of the covenant lies with God. He has promised, both in Abraham and Moses, he has promised that these people will be mine. I will love them as my own. I will dwell with them. I will bless them. I will not curse them. I will save them. All of these promises that he has given to his people. And yet, he is also the holy judge who must punish all who break his law. They promise to obey the law of God or death be upon them. Well, we know they will fail that promise as they do repeatedly, which now puts God in a bind. And this is the tension of the entire the entire narrative of Scripture. Here's the tension. Will he make good on his justice and destroy these lawbreakers? Or will he make good on his promise and love, accept, and even dwell with these lawbreakers? He can't have it both ways. Failure either way would be the death of God. Will God love and accept his people, which we learned last week includes every tongue, tribe, and nation? Or will God condemn and destroy the people who break his law, which we know includes every tongue, tribe, and nation? He must do both or he is a liar. He must love them as his people and he must judge all unrighteousness or he is a liar. Well, something interesting happens next in the story. God calls Moses back on the mountain. After the covenant is sealed, God calls Moses back up on the mountain for more revelation. This time, it's not law. It's two things. 
instructions on how to build a tabernacle and instructions regarding a sacrificial system. The tabernacle is the place where God can be with his people wherever they go, which is what he has promised to do. You're my people. I'm with you. I want you to build a tabernacle so that wherever you go, I can dwell with you. That's the tabernacle. The sacrificial system is God's way of making it possible for God to dwell with his people without destroying them because God receives the blood of animals as the atoning blood for his people. That is, animals are slaughtered in place of people being slaughtered. So after the Mosaic Covenant is signed, God gives them the tabernacle and sacrificial system, which simultaneously solves the dilemma of the Mosaic Covenant, but not fully is the problem. The sacrificial system of the older covenant is a temporary fix, not a permanent one. The blood of bulls and goats cannot fully satisfy the demands of the covenant because they cannot fully atone for people's sins. God accepts the blood of the sacrificial system as a bit of an IOU, as a delayed payment system. But someday it delays God's punishment for a season, for a dispensation. It delays God's punishment, but someday the reckoning will come. It allows God to temporarily dwell, love, and bless his unfaithful people without destroying, it, destroying them. But there will come a time when he's going to have to choose. What will it be? Faithfulness to his people that the covenant demands or judgment upon his people that the law demands? That's his dilemma. What will it be? Will I be faithful to the covenant promises or will I be faithful to justice? He cannot have both, but he has promised both. So what will it be? Well, and thank you for bearing with me um, during all that explanation. As we saw last week, and as I hope you see every week from this pulpit, in some way, in some, in some form, every week from this pulpit, what will it be? Here comes Jesus to save the day. Jesus is the answer to the dilemma because Jesus is the yes to the Mosaic Covenant. Let's turn now to our Savior. We've seen the promise to Moses. Let's celebrate now the yes to Moses. Now, with all that said, we turn to Matthew 1. What's going on here is Joseph doesn't know what to do. He wants to protect his wife, but she's with child. They're not married yet. They're betrothed, and so he is going to divorce her quietly, not make a big scene out of this. But it says, as he considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Here we go. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The promise of Christmas is that the birth of Jesus will be for God's people what the sacrificial system was never able to be. Not just delay punishment of sin, but actually save from sin. Not just delay the wrath of God, but actually satisfy the wrath of God. And that is what he has come to do. He has come to be what the sacrificial system could never be because the, bull, the blood of bulls and goats cannot be. 
but the blood of the Lamb of God can and will satisfy and atone. He has come to die. One of my favorite things about the hymn that we sang earlier is that it seems to be at first your classic, nostalgic, feel-good baby Jesus Christmas song. What child is this? Lay to rest. Mary's lap, sleeping. Exactly how so many of these Christmas songs go. But then out of nowhere, it takes this gruesome turn. Nails, talking about an infant. Nails, spears shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me and you. How's that for a birth announcement? Welcome to the world, our precious baby Jesus, who's going to have nails driven through him that will fix him to a torture device. But that hymn, though shocking, is appropriate because it is why this baby is here. Jesus did not come ultimately to be an example, though he is a perfect example. Jesus did not ultimately come to be a teacher, though he is a perfect teacher. Jesus did not come ultimately to be a social revolutionary justice warrior, though he is that. Jesus came to be the full, final, once and for all atoning sacrifice for sins. Jesus came to hang from a cross and say three words that Sinai demands Three words that centuries upon centuries we have been waiting to hear, but the blood of bulls and goats can never say. He came to say, finally, it is finished. Do you understand how monumentous those words are? When you look at the sacrificial system in Exodus and Leviticus, it is just a continual gory bloodbath of animal sacrifice, intentionally so. When you look at the sacrificial system revealed to Moses, it's nothing but blood. There is, of course, the most significant ones were the annual sacrifices like Yom Kippur, like the Day of Atonement. But it was not just an annual affair. There were seasonal sacrifices, special seasonal times to slaughter but not just seasonal, monthly sacrifices, but not just monthly, weekly Sabbath day sacrifices, but not just the weekly Sabbath day sacrifices, but daily sacrifices, but not just daily sacrifices, morning and evening sacrifices. And those were just the regular sacrifices, not to mention the individual sacrifices where people would come to offer their sacrifice for their own personal sins at the temple. The slaughter was perpetual and the bloodshed is unceasing until that moment when the Lamb of God climbed a lonely hill to shed divine blood and declare what only He can declare it is finished. Finally, it's over. I cannot say it better than Hebrews 10 11 through 12. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly these same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. There's this picture of the Old Testament priest standing there 
just in the business of blood every single day, hands bloody, with sacrifices that can never take away sin. Offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. And he sat down because there's nothing left to do. It's over. As the hymn says, he has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flames. Application question to the Mosaic covenant and promise. What are you going to do about your sin? Again, I know you've got problems, big problems in your life. But this is the problem. What are you going to do about your sin? This is the question every single person is eventually going to have to answer. And if you are not a follower of Jesus... If you are not trusting in his atoning sacrifice, his once and for all, it is finished cross, then I'm going to tell you in the most simplest form, out of love, what you are doing with your sin. You yourself in some way are trying to fix it. Perhaps the fix is to just deny the reality of sin, justice, and judgment day. That's becoming increasingly popular. These are archaic concepts that we in the modern enlightened world know to be untrue now. It's not going to happen. I don't even have to answer that question. So, so what, you are doing, what are you doing about your sin? You're denying that there is even such a thing. Perhaps the fix for you is to reinvent God. He isn't the God of Mount Sinai. He is the God of Oprah. Love everyone accepts everyone, no demands, no justice, no wrath, just your postmodern tolerant affirmation in the sky. So what are you going to do about your sin? You're going to reinvent God who doesn't care about sin. Perhaps your fix is just to ignore it. Just plug your ears, not get there, watch Netflix, numb out through an addiction, whatever. I just don't want to think about it. Just going to pretend like it's not coming. So what are you going to do to fix your sin? You are going to ignore it. Perhaps the fix for you is a religious one. I'm going to outdo my sin with my morality. That's what religions are. Either official religions that all are, are all the same, just offering you a different way to fix the problem by doing good. Or just good old-fashioned, I'm going to be a good person morality. Just, I'm just, I'm not a religious person, but I'm a good person, and I'm going to try to do more good than bad, and I'm just going to trust that, that, that that will be enough. So what are you going to do about your sin? You're going to combat it with religion and morality. Friends, I want to say this in love, and I mean that. All of these attempts are as laughable as my children trying not to sin before bedtime. They are vain, sacrificial systems that you have constructed that cannot rid you of your sin. And I think deep down you know that to be true. I think your conscience is probably haunted by guilt and shame over what you have done and what you have become. 
I think your life is weighed down by the burden of God's law and justice that you want not to be true, but deep down you know is true. I think you are weighed down by the Mount Sinai burden of the law. I think you know you've got a problem and you don't have a good answer to your sin problem. But I, I, if you hear anything from the good news of Jesus as the yes to this law sin problem, hear this, it does not have to be this way. You could, this de- you could this day be rid of your sin problem once and for all. I cannot rid you of your problems. And I know you got a lot of them. And Jesus did not come to rid you of all of your problems and make your life easy. In fact, he'll probably make it harder. But he can and he will rid you of the problem, the sin problem. But you're going to have to humble yourself and trust Jesus to do it for you. You're going to have to say, enough is enough. I can't do this on my own. I'm tired of trying. Cast yourself wholly upon the mercy of Jesus and trust your everlasting soul that when he said it is finished, he wasn't lying. You're going to have to go to your grave trusting that when Jesus said it is finished, it was finished. He wasn't lying. Do that. And there is nothing left to do. How good news is that? Do that, and there's nothing left to do. It is finished. But strangely, you will discover that there is much more you would want to do. Because you're going to fall in love with this Jesus. And this leads me to the followers of Christ among us. What are you going to do about your sin? It's done, right? Once and for all, paid for, it is finished. But it's still there. What are you going to do about your sin? If your answer is nothing because there's nothing left to be done, then you do not comprehend the good news that there is nothing left to be done. Let me say that again. If your answer is, I will do nothing with my sin because there's nothing left to be done, then you do not comprehend the good news that there is nothing left to be done. No true follower of Jesus says to Jesus, thanks for fixing that problem. Now I don't have to worry about the law anymore. Do you know what followers of Jesus say to Jesus? Exactly what Israel said to Moses. All that you have commanded, I will do. I will be obedient. We respond to Mount Calvary just like Israel responded to Mount Sinai. Only it's different this time because the pressure's off. The weight of Sinai has been lifted. We obey the law not because we have to keep a covenant promise to God so that he will love us, but because our loving God has kept his covenant promise to us. Pressure's off. It's okay. You're going to fail. All those things are true. It doesn't matter. It's still the same heart. All that you say, I want to do. All that you have commanded, we will be obedient. That is how you respond to the God who has loved you first. Don't you love your God? If you're a Christian, I know you do. Aren't you in love with him? Do you not love this God who has done all this for you? Well, do you know the best way to express your love, gratitude, and worship to the God who took care of your sin problem? Stop sinning. (laughs) 
obey the law. Call me legalistic. I don't care. Stop sinning. Do what's right. Stop doing what's wrong. This is how we respond to the good news that it doesn't matter where we're able to do what's right and how much wrong we've done. I know it's a paradox, but it works. So application question for you, and we're done. What sin did Jesus die for that you are still living for? And the Spirit will be faithful here. What sin did Jesus put to death that you are keeping alive? Perhaps even because you know you're forgiven, so it doesn't matter. Examine your life, discuss it with others, and may this Advent season bring about a newfound resolution to obey the law. Until that blessed day when you will not have to fight to obey the law. Let's be honest. Forgiveness of sins is great. But what we really want is to stop sinning. So Janet this week, when we talked about Janet Sartell, prayed for and um, and when we got done praying, she said, Robert, you know what I'm most excited about? She's got, you know, weeks, months, until this all becomes real. She said, you know what I'm most excited about? She said, yeah, I, yes, I can't wait to see, see my Savior face to face, be reunited, all that stuff that we talk about. She's like, I can't, but she said, I can't wait to stop sinning. I have been fighting this thing for so long. She said, I'm so tired of being jealous. I'm so tired of coveting. I'm so tired of my bitterness. I'm so tired of my tongue hurting people and getting me in trouble. I just want to be done sinning. I looked at her and I said, Janet, soon the strife will be over. It's coming. You don't have to fight anymore. You don't have to fight anymore. You're just free forevermore. Revelation 21, where we ended last week, says there will be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Now, you know why I can say that there will be no more death, mourning, crying, or pain? Because those are all the consequences of sin. So connect the dots. If there's no more death, crying, mourning, pain, that means there's no more sin. You will have that day when you don't have to fight. But until that day, let us honor the yes to Moses by fighting to obey the law of Moses. Let me pray. Thank you for your faithfulness, Lord Jesus. May it fill us with gratitude and may it re-inflame our hearts to obey the law, which is precious, which is beautiful, which is right. Or thank you that we don't have to. Thank you that you solved the problem. Thank you that it is finished. Now, Lord, Fill us with that through your sacrament that we might go forth here more excited than ever to say yes to you and your laws and no to our sin. Through Christ we pray, amen.